Hey everyone, welcome to the world's okayest entrepreneur, the podcast for the okay entrepreneur who doesn't have an MBA and is just kind of figuring it out on the fly. Today on the show, we're sitting down with Emily Vikra from Vikra Distilling in Duluth, Minnesota. And let me tell you, when we thought about what it would be like to start a distillery in the US, we knew it would be complicated. But what we didn't know was how many ups and downs and basically barriers to entry there are within that space. So with that, on to the show. All right. So this is really exciting. And I actually have questions, Emily. So today we're joined by Emily. And I actually feel like I heard two different pronunciations on the internet. And so now I'm going to get to like Vikray or Vikr. It is Vikra. It's a Norwegian name. Vikra. I'm so completely wrong on all three. <laughs> well, not really. Right. It's hard for people to get the Norwegian like Vikra. Uh, for I don't know because most people don't speak Norwegian weirdly uh, so we kind of go with like Vikra a lot of people do Vikre because it sounds more European we accept all pronunciations I've literally like ordered my spirits at a bar and had the bartender tell me that I was saying my name wrong and I was like okay fine just give me the gin <laughs> I'm like okay. As long as you carry our our spirits, I am totally happy. Did you kind of were were you kind of in your head at that moment, being like, "Do I tell them that I am the owner and maker of this, or were you kind of like, sure, whatever?" No, the person I was with told them, and they were still completely unconvinced. They're like, "That does not matter to me. This is how it's said." It's funny because I grew up with a last name that also, so Vomhoff is my last okay. name, and I grew up with a last name that nobody ever knew how to pronounce. Or if they'd read it, they're like, how do you read that? And I was like, it's pretty phonetic. It's just Vomhoff, V-O-M-H-O-F. But yeah. I understand with yours, it's like, it could go in the Midwest, people are like, Viker or Vikre or Vikra is like, a, you almost have to like, it's almost like in the back of your throat, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. like a little silent at the end. Yeah. Okay, so I want to kind of dive into kind of the beginning of Emily, because I think like, it's just so interesting, like how our childhoods have so much impact on kind of who we end up becoming. And you have kind of like an interesting dual blend. So for my research a little bit, because you are actually a dual citizen, correct? Yes. So I grew up, um, my mom is from Norway and moved to the United States as an adult and came here, studied met my dad, had kids, stayed. But we grew up with lots of family still in Norway, my aunts, my uncles, grandparents when I was little. And we have a family cabin in southern Norway. So we grew up spending several months of every year in southern Norway. Yeah. And kind of going back and forth, having a foot in each culture. And of course, like if you're going to be in the United States, like northern Minnesota is not that culturally different from Norway, but it still is. Like there's still some strong differences. And it's also was very interesting always to notice like the Scandinavian traditions that people who had immigrated longer ago had kind of kept and ossified and repeated and how different things were in Norway and like what contemporary Norwegian traditions were. And so I grew up thinking about that like all the time. I was a nerdy little kid. <laughs> So were you doing summers there then and then like school year here or not yes. exactly? Yeah, basically that. So what are some of the traditions that you noticed that people kind of like held on to who had immigrated to the United States beforehand, like before that weren't really going on in Norway now? Well, the biggest one was like homemade lefse and lutefisk dinners and things like that. <laughs> all of our neighbors made their own lefse in Duluth and we were all like, uh, Lefsa is something you buy in a package at the store. <laughs> like, who makes their own Lefsa? That's gosh, crazy. That's but then it was so fun to, like, learn to make Lefsa from them and start having that as our own tradition and teach it to our family in Norway because fresh Lefsa is so much better. And so we've had, like, aunts and uncles and people come over and we bring them over to our neighbors' houses and they, like, do a Lefsa-making party for them. And, yeah, our relatives are like, oh, you have to come to Minnesota to learn to be a real Norwegian. So a lot of the like, um, so funny. yeah, a lot of food traditions in Norway, of course, have been preserved, but just like in any country, there's a lot of convenience and convenience foods and things like that. And some of the more traditional things just don't get made anymore. Mm -hmm. So what are those more traditional things? Now you said that and I'm like, what's not getting made anymore? Yeah. So like homemade lefse, um, lutefisk, uh, some of the like baked goods, you can still go to bakeries and get like the Kranzkake and the Blötkake and things like that made from scratch. But far fewer people will buy them or far fewer people will make them at home. Uh -huh. But here you have to make them at home if you want to get them. But there are these like cardamom buns called bullet, 
which are these amazing cardamom raisin buns. Absolutely love them. But most of the time in Norway, we would just like buy them in a plastic bag from the gas station and like bring them with us to the beach uh, uh-huh. versus like having to make them from scratch in this day long baking process. I think that's like so interesting because that's like even in Japan. You can go to the 7-Eleven and get like amazing sushi. And if you said to somebody here, like, let's go to the 7-Eleven and get sushi, they would look at you like, Are, am I trying to die? Like, I don't want to get sick, actually, you know? So I think it's interesting that different food cultures just have a different way of, for us, like convenience store food means like that it's junk food, but very much so in like other cultures, like convenience store food is just as good quality sometimes as like what you can get, you know, in a restaurant or something. Right? Isn't that crazy? Like in Norway, I'll eat gas station food for sure. Like we get hot dogs at the gas station and buns and things like that. And then the US, I'd be like, no, thank you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so it's like never good. Yeah. Have you kind of continued with that tradition at all of kind of like bringing your family then back to Norway? Or has it been kind of not quite the same as your upbringing? Yeah, we still go back, but not for as long. I wish I could take three months off in the summer and bring my kids there. But too little too much work, a little too much going on here. So we've been going more like every other year and yeah. spending time there. But my middle younger brother actually moved back to Norway and lives with his wife and kids. And also he married a Norwegian woman. So I have two little nephews there as well. So we're trying to make sure that we still get back over there a lot. So when you started your business, was that something you were had thought about? No. Like that your life was going to change so dramatically? No. Would any of us start a business if we had any idea what it was going to be like? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I probably still would have because I've really decided I was like, I don't think I'm employable anymore. Like if somebody was, I mean, there's days where I'm like, I want somebody to tell me what to do. But most of the time I'm like, I want to do shit my way. Mm -hmm. I do. I I resonate with that. Or it's not even that I like want to do things my way. And there are definitely days or my fantasy job right now is like parking lot attendant. Where I'm like, I'll just sit in a booth and check people in and like read a book the rest of the time. I know. They're always like scrolling on their phone or like reading a book. You're like, okay, wow, you really did. Like you figured out the unlock. I mean, you're never going to make a ton of money, but if you can budget and you're thrifty. Yeah, right. Because otherwise I like look at myself. I'm like, I don't think I'm employable anymore. I don't know what my skills are in the marketplace. (laughs) Yeah. So what's the gap kind of? Because it's like, so you kind of had this really kind of fun, like dual culture like upbringing. And then it wasn't that you kind of graduated, I'm guessing, and you were like, I'm going to start a distillery. Like what was kind of like the in-between phase of like graduation and like, I'm going to now start a distillery. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. It's a wending path to say the least, for sure. I was definitely like, I loved school. I love learning, which is useful when you're an entrepreneur. But I was really strong in multiple disciplines, but just kind of was, I don't know, coached to go into a science direction. So I went to undergrad and majored in biology, but didn't want to be a doctor. My dad was a doctor. I saw how little he got to sleep and I was like, I can't stay up at night. This would never work. So what am I going to do with this biology? Meanwhile, I was also like taking art classes and opera classes and minoring in French and writing my like undergrad thesis in like illustrated comic form. And uh, my teachers were like, or my professors were like, what if you go into like museum work or something where you're taking scientific information, but translating it? And I was like, that sounds awesome. I love museums. So I moved to Boston and started by working at the Boston Children's Museum, where I did kindergarten science programming for the first couple of years and then became their health and fitness educator just because I always had an interest in food and cooking and fitness and this job came open and I was like, I could do that. So um, I took my kind of personal interests in food and exercise and things like that and started developing museum program around it. And meanwhile, I think a friend of my mom was like, maybe you should go into nutrition communication since you like to cook and you're interested in communication. There's this program at Tufts University nearby where you are. And I was like, sure, that sounds interesting. Let's keep learning. So I applied to Tufts for this master's program in nutrition communication and did that. And uh, while I was there, uh, one of the professors was starting a study with immigrant populations in the area on like kind of dietary changes over time in living in the United States, which was something that I'd always been really interested in, having kind of thought about that and 
various cultural eating traditions since I was a kid. So I was like, maybe I should do a PhD so I can do a study with this study. So I applied and got into the PhD program and did a PhD in applied nutrition with this big study on immigrant women and children in the Somerville area around Boston. It's a, kind of a suburb of Boston. But while I was doing my PhD in nutrition, I also was kind of like, maybe I'm really just more interested in food and eating food and good food and flavor. And I started a cooking blog and started like a pretty popular cooking blog and started writing for this food website, Food 52, and developing recipes for them. And so like did like a stint at the Stonewall Foods kitchen in the photography studio. So I was always kind of like, I'm interested in things. (laughs) Right. And uh, so uh, then... uh, My husband, so we were living in Boston, doing very Boston things where I was finishing my PhD. He was working in global health. And we both were kind of like, oh, what do we want next? We don't want to stay on the East Coast. All of our friends in Boston were kind of transient. They were there for a couple of years for education. They moved on and we were finding it hard to build community and we're both very community oriented people. So we wanted to move somewhere where we could feel like we were home. And uh, we happened to visit my parents in Duluth here, and they had just been at a spirits tasting. And uh, they were telling us about it. And they're like, did you know all you need for making great spirits is really good grain and really good water? And we were like, Duluth has that. Somebody should make spirits here. And it was like this earworm that we couldn't get rid of. And we went back to Boston, like, maybe somebody should start a distillery in Duluth. Maybe we should start a distillery to Duluth. Like, how hard could it be? Famous last words. But we oh <laughs> we met like literally the next week after getting back to Boston after vacation. We met a guy who had started a rum distillery in Ipswich, Massachusetts. So uh, we started driving up there on the weekends and trying out the equipment. And we we're like, oh, this is back to our like biochem undergrad. It's kind of basic biochemistry separating things by their boiling point without any thinking about like this has to be a business this has like it's a very competitive landscape etc etc yeah and we're like let's do it let's leap and so about six months after we had had the idea we packed up a u-haul and moved to duluth and wrote a business plan to start micro distillery (laughs) and from basically that point where you packed up the u-haul and then moved to duluth when did the distillery open so uh, we we got to Duluth in the late summer of 2011, <laughs> and the distillery opened in the fall, or we started, we got our license to distill in the fall of 2013, and we started distributing in February 2014. So whatever that time span is. Wow. It was a two-year process to get your license. Okay, so it was almost like a three-year process. Oh, God, you have no idea. Uh, oh, I want to know, though. Tell me. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Okay, it's insane, right? And this is like part of our thinking when we're like, this is a business with a high barrier to entry. So uh, maybe if we get past that barrier, right, it will be not that competitive, not really having a full understanding of just like how dominated this industry is by a few huge players that have like mm-hmm. all the money and all the control. Looking at you in bed. <laughs> but it's very high barrier to entry, right? So we had to find space. We had to do like a massive build out. At the time we were starting, Minnesota had no like special laws for craft distilling. So there was no direct sales at all, no cocktail rooms, no even like sampling to customers. So we knew we were going to have to build out at a scale that would allow us to be financially viable all through distribution. So we built out at like a fairly large scale for a micro distillery. But so you have to raise money to get equipment, raise money for the build out, uh, all that stuff before you can even apply for your federal license to distill because as part of your application for your federal license to distill you have to like give them the blueprint and the vin numbers for your equipment and like all the stuff so that they know exactly what your distillery looks like where everything is what's bonded space what type of locks you use like all this stuff wait a minute so you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and you don't even know if you're going to get the okay to use said equipment yes Exactly. And it's, of course, like binder size application. 
<laughs> yeah, I'd say that's a barrier to entry. <laughs> right? It's just like, it's just huge amounts of paperwork. It's really detailed down to like what types of locks you put on your doors, all this stuff. And that's just like the federal license. Because then, of course, there's fire, there's food safety, there's water permitting. And then you have to also do like the permitting in the state that you're in. And you have to do like permitting for every single state that you're going to sell to. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. And there was something I did. A, I designed a build out for a distillery in the Twin Cities here. And I remember when we were going through the designs, they had to make a bunch of changes because there was only a certain amount of like, uh, it's even like up to the size of the real estate. So like only one portion of your, your square footage can be designated to tasting room. Yeah. And like this, there's like this ratio that this magic number that you have to hit. Yeah, there's like ratios and there's all this like safety stuff to have people public near distilling equipment while at the same time we're required by state law to have cocktail room be compact and contiguous with the distillery. So, and then the federal law says they have to be walled off in a particular way, but fire safety regulations say that they can't be it. So, it's a real juggling act between everyone's requirement. Oh my God. So the barrier to entry is quite high. I can't, like even you saying that, I'm like, wow, that is so much to figure out. Did you have a mentor with you on the side or were you just kind of like bulldozing your way through and you're like, I'm just going to keep figuring it out as I go. One new mountain yeah. after another. A combination. We had some mentorship We uh, from a couple of other distilleries that had started, particularly one in Washington State which is where we also bought used equipment from. So they helped us with some of the pieces of the application, which was really awesome. So that was really, really helpful. We just went to a lot of like lawyers and bank and business and a lot of just like back and forth talking to the regulators too and asking all the questions and being like, if you're going to make us do all of this, please answer our questions and help us through it. But there was a lot of just like bulldozing and doing it. And one of the things I love on like all this stuff, <laughs> I shouldn't even say this, but when you sign off, right, that you like are that everything is like accurate. It always says, right, like to the best of your knowledge. And I've always like been like, yes, to the best of my knowledge, this is all accurate. I have done my best. Like I'm not lying about that. This is the best I could do. I researched this really hard. And then when there's mistakes, it can be like, well, it was like, I didn't understand that. And actually, usually regulators are mostly out to help you do things right, not to like slap you on the wrist. So that's great, too, because they'll always just send it back and be like, this is right. <laughs> and you do it again. Right. My accountant always explained to me working with the government is like essentially making sure that your file folders are all in the right place. And sometimes pieces of paper get in other files that just need to be moved around. And like, that's all they're looking for is that things are just filed correctly or there's the right dot over the right I and the T, like T's are crossed, basically. Yes. Yeah. Like, I think they get it, but it's like really complicated. So if you're trying, they're like, okay, we're going to help you get the things in the right place. Because so many people aren't even trying. So walk us through then that time when, because Minnesota, we do have some very, now we're kind of like, now you can get alcohol here, whatever you want. It's just kind of like any other state. But we definitely, we had a time here where, like you were saying in the beginning when you started this, you know, a decade plus ago, like you weren't actually able to have like a tasting room so people could come in and very much like, you know, we couldn't sell alcohol on Sundays in Minnesota, like you know, we're like, we're progressive-ish. We're progressive light, you know, we're, for some reason, like Sunday laws were a thing. So walk us through that time period where it wasn't that you were able to do direct, you know, where how were you convincing people like, take a bet on my shit. It's really amazing. Yeah, right. It's wild to think back on. And I think so much of it was just based on like, confidence and bravado and going really really hard and like not even under like not understanding why somebody wouldn't want it or wouldn't take a bet on it and kind of acting from <laughs> that space yeah which you know has its dangers too because we're working with distributors and then the distributors are selling to retailers and then the retailers are selling to the end user and the distributors kind of speak a different language from anyone else and have different priorities. The retailers speak a different language from anyone else and have different priorities. And then the end users are the ones that you're kind of think you're trying to market towards, but you have to market and convince these people in between two. And we definitely made like a lot of mistakes with not understanding what the priorities for the distributors and the retailers and things like that were. But I think we were 
new enough. It was a new enough industry. And we were some of the first people to do it in Minnesota. And the distributor saw a market opportunity. So they saw it as, as market opportunity. So we really benefited from their knowledge and their help pushing it. Um, we originally went into our distributor, not even with product, right? Because that's another crazy thing about distilleries. You can make homemade wine. You can make homemade beer to learn how to do it. You cannot distill without your federal license to distill. So we didn't have proof of concept in the process of like getting up and running because we had to get everything running before we could get our permit. We had to get our permit before we could make products, but we had to get distribution before we could like have a place for our products to go. So we came in with just like descriptors and mock-ups and things like that and just kind of pitched it as like, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to be awesome. Here's our credentials. Here's our food credentials, things like that. And I think the distributor took a gamble because they knew that the craft industry was coming, whether or not it was us, and uh, wanted it in our portfolio or in their portfolio. And then we just were beating the pavement all the time ourselves the first few years. You know, we were in the distillery at all hours of the day. We were at tastings. We were all over the place doing every event, every tasting, everything, and doing a lot of PR. And we're lucky to get just a lot of natural PR because we're early adopters too. And so a lot of newspaper articles, a lot of magazine articles, things like that. Won some early awards from like the American Distilling Institute and the American Craft Spirits Association for some of our gins. And so that also like gave some credentials to kind of convince people to try it. But it's been like an uphill battle the whole time, honestly, because the distributors are never going to make, like, they're going to make so much more money selling Jose Cuervo and Hendrix and Smirnoff than our small batch stuff, but you still have to go through them. So it's a constant, there's constant tension there. And it's just nonstop work. Right. Because you've got to convince them that you're like, no, give me when you're going and talking to your place. Talk me up too. Like you've got to convince them. It's almost like you're like, can I do a handshake deal with you that you will mention me with Jose when you're having this conversation with like X like hotel chain or something like that? I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. It's like they've got this big book of things that they're trying to sell and different incentives from different producers and things like that. And you're like, like, don't forget about me. So yeah, we do a lot of visiting accounts and things like that too. And trying to be really focused on, yeah, what's going to be a good fit for us? Where can we, you know, when we started, our viewpoint was just like, where can we benefit? Where can we benefit? And now we've come, you know, through all that learning through mistakes made and people being mad at us and all that stuff. Like, where can we get benefit for everybody? Like, where can we make the sale? But if we're making the sale. It's also getting a good sale for the distributor. It's also getting a good sale for the retailer. And there's going to be a happy end customer. Where can we like maximize that? I think that's good advice for anybody running a business, tr- selling to an end consumer, is making sure those different channels that you're working through are all, all the knots are being tied in them. Yeah. That, that everybody's happy at the end. Yeah, right. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. So you said something and now my spidey senses went up and then you were like, you know, we screwed up along the way and we apologized and stuff like that. Is there like a particular story of you were like, oh my God, like I can't believe this happened to us kind of during that phase that you remember? That sticks out? Um, I mean, not particular stories per se. I mean, I can tell particular stories of where we screwed up. I love stories. <laughs> <laughs> but not as much like with, you know, with the relational stuff, it was more just like, wow, some really tense meetings where people were yelling at each other, being like, why are you selling more of our stuff? And the distributor being like, hello, you guys are idiots, like blah, blah, blah. And uh, taking a few months for that to sink in and then coming back and being like, Uh, heard, you know, we're here and really just changing our tone and changing our language and how we communicate it and being like, how can we assist you to reach all of our goals? How can we assist you? But it takes some like swallowing (laughs) your pride (laughs) to be like, oh, yeah, these are busy people with, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is true. Like, yeah, for everybody, everybody's busy and has their own agenda and multiple things are taking care of. Like, 
you know, you are not as important to anybody as you are to yourself, of course. <laughs> but right, like we made all sorts of amazing mistakes when we were starting up, like horrifying things, everything from, you know, having issues with not realizing, like it took years to understand the difference really between like profit and loss and cash flow and getting, <laughs> right, like getting yeah. the good deal, right? Like, oh, if we buy 5,000 of this packaging unit, it is half the price. Like we should do that because it's so much better. Like then our cost of goods is so much better. And then you're like, oh, we just spent all this money getting 5,000 of this packaging unit that's going to take us three years to go through. And one year in, we're going to change our mind about what type of packaging we need. And so now 2,000 of those units are a moot point. And you're like, ah, and why does it look like we're making money, but we have no money? It just, oh, it's so hard to wrap your brain around. And then we had just like, we have like the, a fantastic bookkeeper and accountant now, thank goodness. But the first couple of years, we had a bookkeeper who had not worked with a manufacturing company before. And so she did not know how to properly do like accrual accounting and understand um, the pieces. Because we have like a really complicated thing going on where we have many different pieces going on to several different and units and all these different inputs and a few outputs and allocating them properly to know like how much is it costing us to make each thing. And she didn't really understand that and was doing it wrong, but didn't want to admit it and was just making adjustments and then lying to us and being like, this is how it's supposed to be. You just don't understand bookkeeping. For like two years, we were getting gaslit. Oh, bummer. And finally, we had a friend of ours who um, has worked in business for a long time who was like, you guys, bookkeeping is arithmetic. If there's something you don't understand, it's because there's something wrong. And so we had to let her yeah. go and go through a huge cleanup process with our books. And it turned out that for two years, we'd been selling our products at a loss. Oh, no. Like, and we're like, oh, that's why we have no money. And uh, because it had been like the way we were making things was so expensive. And we had this moment where we were like, are we going to just shut down? Like, does this not work? And we had to, it was like, you know, late night conversations where we were like, well, what if, like, what if we adjusted some parts of the process and changed how we were getting our grain and changed some of our raw good stuff in keeping with our values and keeping with our flavors, things like that, but got them in a way that was like a tenth of the price. Which was like a weirdly hard decision at the time because it was a big shift in how we were operating. But then after we made that shift and had done that for a few months, it was like, oh, we're all used to it. It's more energy efficient. It's actually more environmentally friendly. And we're finally making some money on our products. <laughs> right. And hopefully your new accountant was able to amend those first two years and get your return on those losses. Yes. Yep. But oh my gosh, she had such a big, our new accountant had such a big job when she started up. I mean, she still has a big job because oh, sure. there's a lot of pieces to keep track of. But that was a big mess to clean up. It was a lot of work. As right, a person that's now sure. on her fourth bookkeeper, I very much so understand this process. And I feel like I may have overpaid. I don't know. I've just kind of drawn a line in the sand of like, what was, was. And I'm just going to move forward because I just got to, like, my energy can't be put in the past. Of maybe there is, like, money I could have gotten back but I just don't truly know anymore. So totally. I was telling myself recently, I was like, I should take a class on it. Yeah. It's such an important kind of line in the sand to draw sometimes is like figuring out that like where, yeah, where is the past in the past? Learn, learn your lessons when you can, but like always move forward. And it's, you know, it's, it takes so much energy and it takes so much coaching employees and things like that, but mistakes happen no matter what. And it hurts and it sucks and it makes you feel bad about yourself all the time. But you also have to be like, okay, the only thing we can do is learn from that mistake and move forward. Because, yeah, it's just not going to fix anything to dwell. No, and I think it's the accepting. Like, if you can get... I've gotten really zen with the fact that, like, we will make mistakes, but we're going to, like, learn from them. And that's the biggest thing is, is, like, the biggest issue is only if you keep making mistakes and you're not learning from them. If you're just kind of like, well, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing, but expecting a different outcome, then that's, like, kind of where... And it just doesn't work. It's interesting to me because, like, when you had that one bookkeeper, it sounds very much like your intuition was telling you like something's wrong here, you know, but you just mm -hmm. kind of didn't know like what were your other options. And I think that's always such an important point when you're building a business is just like to take a step back and be like, could I ask somebody else? Like, is this right or like wrong? Like you just get that like imposter syndrome of like, it must be me, but it's usually that your intuition is really actually quite on the money on something. That was a pun. 
But yeah, so it literally was on the money on this one. But yeah, that was not intentional. But yeah. Yeah, right. And it can be hard. I feel like oftentimes, like, especially as a woman in business or this or that, right? Like, we're always thinking about like, is it me? What can I be doing better? And it's hard to like make that space and be like, nope, this is not me. This is a problem that is external and needs to be fixed. No, it very much so is. So one thing that I thought was really interesting that I kind of want to touch on, and now that we're learning so much more about you, I'm kind of still very curious about why still distilling? Because you said on a different podcast that you were more of a wine person before you really decided to open up like a distillery and kind of get into that. Like, what was the like, was it just kind of that like initial call of you heard like Minnesota has great, great grain and great water and you're like, good enough. Like, I'm just very curious if you could expand upon that. Yeah, right. It's a, like almost an existential crisis type of question of being like, we had no interest in distilling. I had no interest in cocktails. Like, why be so called to be like, well, we're going to make take this huge risk and start a distillery. And it really was, it felt like a call from Duluth from the lake to be like, you want to live here, you want to build community here. Here's an idea that I've gifted you to allow that. It's an idea that will allow you to like explore your creativity and put roots down in the place where you want to put roots down. And so that was kind of the original real appeal and driving force. And, you know, as, and then again, I love to learn things. So, like, as we got into it, I got really, really into researching the history of various spirits, the history of cocktails, everything about cocktail development and cocktail technique and spirit development, spirit technique and things like that. And so now, you know, never was and I'm never going to be the like, I'm, I'm a bearded guy in flannel who loves whiskey and therefore decided to start my own distillery. But I am like, I am passionate about flavors and things that have an interesting history and definitely spirits that right like people have been distilling since like 300 bc and alcohol is the it's like a perfect solvent it can pull flavors out of herbs and spices and things like that better than anything else can it's historically been used for all these medicinal properties like it's really really fascinating and it is fun to be doing something very tangible and very rooted in all of those thousands of years of tradition were there like infusions that you played around with first before you really started distilling Yeah, for sure. You know, even as we were working on all of our licensing and getting equipment and things like that, we were doing experiments with like direct infusion where I would buy some vodka and just put different types of spices and things like that in there to get a sense of how things infuse and what types of flavors come out and did a lot of, and it it is a direct infusion is going to give you different flavors from and infusion and distillation, but it gives you some sense of flavor combinations and things like that that you like before then you start trying to translate them into distilling. Right. How long did it take you to become a whiskey drinker? Oh, I'm still barely a whiskey drinker. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is funny because when we were like, yeah, let's start a distillery, I guess we should try out drinking some whiskey. Joel and I went to a liquor store and Joel chose as our like first whiskey to ever try a Laphroaig tenure, which if you're not familiar with it is like a super peaty, smoky scotch, like not a starter drink of any sort. And we were like, this is horrifying. If we ever learn to like this, I guess we'll know we've made it. <laughs> but Maybe. yeah, so I do like whiskey, but it's not my passion. Like botanicals, spices, herbs, things like that are more my passion, I would say. And that comes from that kind of culinary background and exploring culinary creativity and the diversity of flavors. But whiskey is really fun because you get to explore like flavor profiles of local grains and the different ways that different barrel treatments bring out different flavors and But it's a very, there's a long time lag in those flavor experiments because you're making something, trying to guess what it's going to taste like aged based on how it smells and tastes when it's not, then leaving it in barrels for years and testing it along the way. So it's a slow feedback loop. It's kind of like getting your license to distill. You have to like put all this money forward. Yeah, right. You got to do all these things before you know if it's going to go okay. So I'm really interested in like kind of like so present tense of the your distillery because you have kind of like several channels and like ways that you make money now. Can you kind of bring us like 
to like the current version of the distillery and like you know how many people are like running like the tap room versus like the actually like making of it you know and like because I'm I'm just I'm so curious because your business is very I don't know if your business is different from my business you're a first distiller on the podcast so I just am kind of curious like you know how many people do you employ like because I'm guessing it's a lot Mm -hmm. but maybe I'm wrong no it is interesting for being kind of a small business, we do employ quite a few people and we do have quite a few like channels and revenue streams and ways that we're operating, which have kind of, it's like a necessity for the business. It's also a necessity for like legal compliance and things like that. So we have uh, just over 40 people who work here and uh, we have slightly less than half of that, I would say, work in the cocktail room. So that is this mm-hmm. whole hospitality side of things that is also kind of like we like to have it be the creative and sort of spiritual soul of the brand right so it's hospitality it's brand and it's creative expression on a faster turnaround time than developing new spirits because we can make new cocktails and try new things and be really flexing that muscle constantly there and so but it's also a tourist experience because Duluth is a tourist town so for a number of the months of the summer right it becomes very focused on the tourist experience and tours and teaching and giving opportunities like that. And there's birch, there's all that stuff boiled in there. Then we also have the production side of things, which has about eight people working in it. And they are responsible for making the products, packaging the products, managing those supply chains, getting orders fulfilled, sent out to distributors in six different states. And also a lot of reporting and legal compliance that is part of production and uh, mainly for taxation purposes. The government mainly wants its taxes. And we have a sales team, um, sales and marketing. We have about four people, four or five, mainly part-time people, actually. We have a lot of people who work in sales who also work in another role because I think one of the big problems in this industry sometimes is like having salespeople who are on the road constantly mm-hmm. and just burning out because they are on the road constantly, just out at bars and things like that constantly. And it's hard to like have a grounded lifestyle. So we have people who are like halftime sales, halftime, like doing something here to give more flexibility to their Dude. schedule. And then um, I'm the marketing department still. <laughs> I haven't given that away yet. And then we have accounting, bookkeeping, which is, as we have know, yeah. uh, learned through hard experience is very important. Yes. Is that the main stuff? That's the main stuff. So you're still doing all of the marketing for your company then? Pretty much. I mean, I work with some external partners yeah. for, you know, getting data and targeting ads and things like that. And we'll work with designers sometimes to create certain things or videographers, like I'll bring in independent contractors, but I still kind of run it directly and make most of the creative myself actually and like every video that we do I've written and gotten the props for and yeah every ad you see I've made (laughs) do you enjoy doing it I do I think that's why I've held on to it it's kind of creative and fun and I also think that a big part of and I'm sure you find this too we can talk about this but like when you are a small brand in a crowded landscape of really big brands, and you're like, why should people care about me and my products versus anybody else? One of the only things you really have is like the personal aspect of it. Like I am a human doing, we are real people. We are not a corporate brand. Like we're real people. Our brand is us making real things with our hands. And the way for people to connect really easily with that is for like us to also be doing the talking and getting our voices out there and the marketing and on the social media and things like that. It's also tricky, right? Because when you're building a business, like maybe the end game is to be able to not run your business forever and ever and ever and ever. And so if the brand is kind of you and like these, this personal side, like how do you translate that into a business that can run without you someday when you're like 80 and I like I've had it. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw like a YouTube video where it was a guy was like, he was about to turn 91 and he's still working at his New York City ice cream shop. And the YouTuber was like, you know, 
he's like, oh, are you ever going to quit? He's like, nah, man, when I die. And he's like, yo, he's like, do you, I was like, what's your diet? He's like, I've had 10 ice creams today. And I was like, maybe that's like the path for longevity. It's just entrepreneurship. Actually, like there's a lot of people that live long and they're like, I just never stopped working. You know, I don't know if I'm endorsing it, but it seems interesting to me. So (laughs) yes, right. No endorsement here, but interesting observations, right? That a lot of people, like if they keep working longer, stay alive longer. And also, if you eat ice cream, you stay alive longer. Just an observation. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm I'm already kind of planning my retirement career. Like, instead of saying I'm going to retire, it's like, what's my retirement career going to be? Yeah. What's my next career? It's so funny to me that so many people have that is a thing. They're just like, well, I want to work up to this, but then this is what I really want to do. And I'm like, why are we not making that true now of like, how do we make this? So we'll have to go offline or future podcast, Andrew, on you on like, why can't we just make your retirement career your actual career? So that's a tricky well, question, the, the right? Career, the retirement career itself. Yeah. <laughs> right. The retirement career itself is like maybe a continuation of what I already like doing, but it's like, it takes it to a different type of thing. But you're right. You're right. Why couldn't you just do it now? Yeah. Although I will say, right, like it also, I think we've gotten into a culture of expecting instant results in our career in addition to everywhere else. And people are like, why can't I just do what I want to be doing now? And forgetting that like some things really take a lot of work and it's going to take a long time to get to that place. And it's going to take putting in some, some hard work and some learning and some hard knocks. And maybe, yeah, your first career is actually like skill building for your retirement career. Right. More things to think about. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, my, that's a really, that's really good insight. Both Andrew and I are like, we're going to be sitting on that one for a little second here, Emily. <laughs> so, yeah. Mark that clip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I have a couple more things that I'm very curious about. First off is not only have you done all of this, but on the side, you also, A, had a family, but B, you also wrote books. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That old thing. <laughs> like, this whole thing, what? And not just one book, two books, correct? Two books? Yes, and I have two more coming out next year. Oh, my God. <laughs> so tell us about how that all happened, like, on the same pathway as this. Was it something that you were like, I want to write these books? Or were you more of a, like, somebody approached you and you were like, you seem to have this skill set. Can I give you money to write a book? And you were like, sure bring us along this book journey that you have. Yeah, it was the latter. And I feel almost like bad being like, I never intended to write a book and here I am writing books. It is cool though too, right? Because like some of my earliest memories from childhood are of looking at cookbooks. Like I love cookbooks. I I have loved them since my start of my memory. And I love like food photography and reading recipes and things like that. So it was always something that was like in my head. It's like, this is the coolest thing. I will never be good enough to be able to do something like this was also my like terrifying, super critical inner monologue that is always running back there. And uh, gosh, I don't even, I can't even remember how many years ago it was, but I had been doing a lot of like talks and teaching about Akavit, which is a traditional Scandinavian spirit infused with caraway and citrus and other spices and things like that. And because I'm Norwegian, we wanted to have an Akavit at our distillery. And it was actually the first Akavit distilled in Minnesota. And some people knew what Akavit was, but a lot of people didn't, still don't. Um, so I was doing a lot of teaching about Akavit, how to use Akavit in cocktails, things like that. And a person who was a book editor had been at one of my talks, and he approached me a little bit later and was like, I think our publishing house should do a book on Akavit, because we had a couple of successful books on like the history and culture of tequila and the history and culture of bourbon. Would you want to write an Akavit book? And I was like, that would be pretty cool, actually. And so we went through the whole process of pitching that to the editorial team, and they decided that it was not Akavit's time. Not enough people were going to be interested in Akavit. And then about a year later, the same publishing house had a successful like camping cookbook on the market. And I don't remember why, but they're like, oh, we should have a camping cocktail book. And they approached me about that because they were like, you are outdoorsy and you do cocktails. We should do a camping cocktail book. And I was like, that has got, there's got to be so many of those because we get questions at the distillery all the time for people heading up the shore and like, what kind of cocktail could I bring camping? And there were no camping cocktail books on the market. So I was like, all right, we're going to make a camp cocktail book. And so uh, that, the process of making that book was really fun because I was taking all of the advice and things like that, that I had collated over the years, giving to people on like Instagram DMs 
and talking yeah. to friends and what they do and kind of inventing recipes and also weaving in some of the like foraging and foraging based recipes that we're making at the distillery and making a book specifically about kind of cocktails that really shine when you're outside, whether you are backpacking, canoe camping, glamping at the cabin in your own backyard, kind of any of those. And then based on the success of that book, they kind of just keep asking me to write books, <laughs> which is funny. Did you have to do like a lot of like formulating for it? Or were you because of like, you just had all of this knowledge from doing it day to day that it, like a lot of people have said, like writing a book is like this very like arduous process that it's a little bit like painful, but it almost sounds like for you, it wasn't like that. It was actually like I don't know. Tell me, was it painful at times, Emily, or was it actually quite enjoyable? The camp cocktail book was not very painful. It was more like, a, wow, I have all of this knowledge and all these things that we're doing. Let's just set it down on paper. And so it was pretty fun. It flowed pretty easily. And so I was really, really lucky in that way. A couple of the other books have been more work just because it's been like a little bit more recipe development of new recipes or more like testing recipes that I cook but have literally never measured the ingredients for because I hate measuring for cooking. I always measure for cocktails, never for cooking. It's a weird thing. I just kind of like more and also just like harder to fit into my schedule because I'm so busy. And so there's a lot of like midnight writing. But I think if I say it were to like sit down and write a book that was the story of the distillery or write a novel or something like that, like I could see that being hard work where you're just like having to keep your ass in the chair and push through getting these words out and editing them. But with a cookbook, it's more of like a joyful exercise of collating recipes that you love and telling people a little bit about them, which to me is like one of the things I really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. No, that sounds... I, that makes a lot of sense because it's like very much so like you just had all of this knowledge available to you and it actually just gave you a funnel for it instead of you kind of like trying to like rip apart your soul and being like, cool, you know, and then sharing yeah. it with everybody. Yes, totally. It was like a this instead of a this. Yeah. That's not helpful in a podcast. I just made hand gestures, <laughs> folks. I think they understood from the words. There was like a, I'm ripping out this part of my soul and then this part yeah. of my soul. So yeah. Like a pulling in versus a ripping apart. context to it. She took her hands and literally ripped her part. Or so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. I think that's interesting. And I guess that's kind of like leads to my next question though of kind of like ripping, not ripping apart the soul, but you had a really interesting blog post that kind of actually blew up on Instagram. That's actually where I first saw it, which was this like real talk about a small business. And it really got me interested, like, why did you decide to write this post then? And I mean, it resonated with so many people, myself included. But like, what was the like, fuck it point where you were like, I'm just writing this now? Yeah, right. I think it was a couple years in coming. And it really grew out of conversations with friends of mine who also are small business owners and entrepreneurs. And we had been feeling this, I think, all ourselves. This kind of like, wow, this is so hard. Am I the only one that this is so hard for? And we had started, especially like during COVID and things like that, where we're all like, how do we navigate this? And then post-COVID, it's like almost harder because you're not back in the old world, but you're not in the COVID world and the economy is doing who knows what and everything is difficult. And here you are being like, support my small business. And so we started just kind of like bringing it up to each other and being like, how shitty was your day today? Like, or I'm really struggling with this. Like, are you struggling with this? How do you deal with this? And a lot of the things of being like, I feel like I'm making mistakes all the time, or I'm making new mistakes all the time. Will I ever get good at this? Or, oh, there's like, people always kind of ask you how things are going with this. Like, you're killing it, aren't you? And you have to be like, yeah, live in the dream. Yeah. But it's so hard. It's so hard. And even like you listen to entrepreneur podcasts, you listen to business coaching, things like that. And it all is with this like, and here's how you fix the problem, which is good, but it doesn't necessarily give you the space to be like, but it's so hard. Is anyone else feeling like it's so hard? Or is everyone just like, spring, 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 I'm fixing all my problems. So after a couple of years of these conversations with all of us being like, yeah, we're all feeling this way and all feeling like we can't talk about it for fear of people being like, whoa, they must be failures instead of being like, wow, even a successful business is really, really hard. And the small business is really, really hard. We're like, there must be other people out there who just are feeling alone and like they suck because it's so hard. It's kind of like parenting too, right? Like 
even if you're an amazing parent, it's hard. And just because something is hard doesn't mean you suck. But you have to hear that from other people. You can't, it's like hard to just tell yourself that. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of decided, and we're also like getting a lot of judgment, honestly, I think from people assuming that like, because we're in business, we're the man or assuming because we're in business, we have XYZ type of money or power and people who are like, oh, you're too big. I don't want to support you anymore. Oh, you're too small and inconsistent. I don't want to support you. It's just like judgment, judgment, judgment from people um, without them even real and like realizing or intending like none of it is intended that way but people are making judgments without full information that's what we all do like no judgment on people for judging (laughs) but we're like let's just make this information available because we want other entrepreneurs to feel seen and less alone and we want the public to know like there are systemic issues that make it so hard to be an entrepreneur so hard to be in small business for better or worse right like Every small business, even though you're supposedly just competing in your field, we're all really competing with the Amazons and the Walmarts and the culture of convenience and commodity that's been created by that. And so we wanted to put it out there into the world. And yeah, it blew up. And then especially because like some of the businesses that we have absolutely loved and like look like they're killing it on Instagram or what have you, we're having to close. And so we shared it with them to be like, you're not alone. And it got shared further. It's just like, yeah, being mm-hmm. visible doesn't mean you're successful. Being available a lot of places doesn't mean you're successful. Like there's so many pieces in there. And no matter how well you're doing, it's also a nonstop learning curve. You never get to coast and set it and forget it. You're, there's always going to be new problems to fix. And from an external perspective, from an internal perspective, from an employee perspective, it's easy to think like, oh, there's problems. Oh, there's problems. We're doing things wrong. Instead of like, oh, there's always going to be problems to fix. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that is the, this whole social media and running a business is such a weird blend now because it is like, you have to be your own cheerleader. So it can very much so externally look extremely positive and being like, we're doing shit and everything. But like the behind the scenes is like, really fucking hard and it's interesting because i'm guessing like that post for you is probably one of your most like popular posts ever that you've ever made Oh, by far (laughs) and i think it's interesting because there is this like relatability of it though is like i think that people while like we have to self-promote it is so relatable and i think that's what people love more is when you're like that authenticity part of it is like it's just all hard everywhere and so i think that's just interesting do you find that where do a lot of businesses, do they reach out to you or also like some small, like just like customers or just people that found it? Did they also reach out to you from that post? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, some customers, but honestly, mainly businesses. And that was kind of really the fundamental goal of it was to just put it out there and let people know like you're not alone in your experiences. And so that made it so meaningful because there were small businesses from across the country, from California to North Carolina, to New York, to Ohio, reaching out and being like, I read it in tears because it's the first time that I felt like I'd heard my experience reflected back to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it does. It sets up this interesting dynamic because I think people do want authenticity, but but people also want positivity and... Like, how do you how do you balance? Like, I don't want to like yeah. be constantly talking about how hard it is, but I don't want to constantly be like, everything's fine. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's a balance. I think that's a really interesting point. I don't think point. there's an answer. No, I don't think that there is. It's always a blend. You know, it's just a whole world of gray at the end of the day, because it is, is like, you don't, if you were like, shit sucks all the time, people would be like, I don't want to do anything with that business. Like, it's just it's too pessimistic. Like, you know, it's bringing me down, honestly. Like, I guess I'm literally going to drink my sorrows away here because this is like the saddest <laughs> distillery known to humankind here. But yeah. it is like this interesting blend. Right. And it's not that. I know. I think it's so hard, though, because it's on social media specifically. It's like if one person says like, and even in in like a customer gives you like one piece of feedback, like they're always like, you may missed the mark here and you're just like the it's soul crushing like the weight of mm-hmm. it is like and hundreds thousands of people could be like uh, you are so important to me but that like one negative comment can just like it feels like a crushing weight sometimes absolutely and i would also say it's hard to it's this has been like one of my big learning processes one of the things i talk about with friends a lot is like how do you accept it that it's crushing like i don't think some of us i don't think can ever learn to just let it roll off right and so where do you find the energy to be like wow that was crushing i'm gonna put in the energy to like 
reframe, figure out what I can learn from it. Because it takes a lot of energy to do that and keep going. I think some people naturally let things roll off (laughs) a little bit more easily, but then maybe don't have like the same level of empathy or insight about other things. And so I'm always trying to think like, okay, where, yeah, where do I derive the energy for like, dealing with all the crushing blows that inevitably come because they are part of life. Yeah. Yeah. What was, I thought I had something else. I think I lost it. Well, I'm very much so. I'm like, team, I will toss it over in my head 8,000 ways. Like my husband, Andrew actually has it too. We uh, figured this out about each other while we were starting the podcast. Ooh, it's like all of a sudden our partners will be like, where did you go? And I'm like, oh, I'm just overanalyzing something in my brain for the 8,000th time. Like just being like, well, what if I'm like ruminating about it this way? Is it gonna like hit different this time for the 8,000th time right. that I thought about it? Yeah, I always try to look at it in perspective is like, I first, my first instinct is always like, well, what did I do wrong to give somebody that, to give somebody that opinion? And then I'm like, they could also, then I have to reframe it and be like, well, they're having, they might just be having a bad day and they saw something that triggered them and that's okay. And then it's like, but, and then don't forget about the other thousand people that thought this was okay. And it's like, it's complicated, but you have to, at the same time, just get through it and get over it. You know? Yeah. Right. Like you can't. Because it's like, is this mission cling to it forever this is not yeah right it's like you have to kind of like keep your eye on the prize but it's hard because it can also bring you down that day and it takes energy to bring yours like it takes it takes energy and like giving yourself space to even say and take the time to be like that hurt is it mission critical what do the other thousand people say like you have to give yourself space and time to do that and that can be hard. Yeah. I mean, I think in our company where I've seen it hurt the most is like when you when you think you're doing something so well for a customer and then you don't meet their expectations or they don't appreciate the work that you feel like you've been doing for them. And you've built this up in your mind and then you find out they're not. It kind of crushes you because like at the end of the day, we are trying to make our end customers happy. And when they're not happy, it just it hurts us because that's what we've set out to do in a way. You know? Yeah, right. It's personal, right? Because you're and I think that's one of those big things. And I'm sure this is true in big business, too. But certainly with small business is like you are creating something that is unique and kind of a piece of art in its own way and is very personal and comes from yourself. But you're still trying to please an end customer. And so how do you retain your vision and your sense of self? while also trying to please someone else. It's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those people, when I hear when they're getting, when they're upset, I just, I honestly just want to go up to that one customer and just want to like put my arm around him and be like, it's going to be okay. I'm not a monster. I promise. <laughs> I swear. But if you keep coming after me, I could turn into one. Like, just give me a breather. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could go Mr. Hyde on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't make me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes Louis, I think that's like the flip of it is I've actually learned to let customers go sometimes too, yeah. like where they're just like coming and like the, the way they're approaching a situation. I'm like, you know what? You're just actually not worth the energy at the at the moment because I don't think I'm ever going to be able to please you. Like, there's mm-hmm. just no, like, I, I do feel like I did what I do for pretty much 90, I do for 99% of everybody else. And we're like, we get on the line and then there's always going to be one that one person. And I'm like, it's just not worth it. I'm just not your brand. Please take your money somewhere mm-hmm. else because it's just truly not worth it at the end of the day. And that was a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, for sure. Right. It's hard to... To figure out where that line is and that lesson of like, here, we're trying to please people and make people happy with something really nice. And we also have to be able to say kindly to some people like, it seems like we're not the right fit for you. It seems like you're looking for something else. Yeah. And in your head, you're like, so that's a you issue, not a me issue. (laughs) I'm just going to toss this back at you. Yeah. (laughs) But also at the same time, we have to also acknowledge that we also don't have our best days either. And people have to acknowledge that we're also still human. And we have to accept that as well and not be so hard on ourselves when it comes to moving forward. We have to accept that we make mistakes sometimes. Oh, I've got... That should be, you know, we all make a lot of mistakes. That's why one Google review that will live on my Google page in existence was like, I was in the middle of a photo shoot and had to run into a store and grab something. And this person thought that I was like the most cold, rude owner known to humankind. But we were like over budget on this photo shoot and like these models needed stuff and I was just running into the store to get it and they were like and the owner is cold and rude but the sales associate was nice and I was like for fuck's sakes here I'm sorry like it's interesting because it's like 
like whenever I go out and I'm curious if you feel like this too, Emily, when you ever probably go out onto the tasting room, almost feel like you have to be an 11 all the time. And sometimes you're like, I'm internally like at a fucking two right now. And like to do an 11 is like the biggest lift. Like there's sometimes I won't even go out into my shop because I'm like, I literally can't put the facade on today for you. Yeah, that is such a good point. Right. Or even like, we live in a small community. So there's part of me that's like, I have to be at an 11 in every interaction I have. Wow. Yeah. And that is right. Like that's part of a little bit of one of the things we were like bringing up in the blog post about the real truth of small business too, is like people forget that the boss, the owner, whomever is still a person and we have bad days and we have sick kids and we have all this stuff. And like, we literally can't be perfect. You know, part of leadership is trying to really be aware of your own energy and knowing like, oh, I'm at a two today. I either need to respectfully decline getting involved in this or take a big energy reset so I can walk in with the appropriate energy for this um, and being self-aware enough to do that. But it is also like, really unreasonable for the world to expect somebody to be perfect all the time just because they are an entrepreneur or a boss. Yeah. So what do you do for an energy reset? What are some of the things that you do to cope? This is something that I am really working on and working on like noticing my guilt around doing things to reset my energy and whatnot, because that's hard too. Because especially like when you're a mom and a woman, it's really hard to be like, I'm not being selfish. I literally cannot give anybody the good side of myself if I don't do an energy reset. So I do a lot of like, I don't do like meditation per se, but a lot of just like reflective time each day to kind of take some quiet time, set my energy, have this little like energy tapping routine that I do, (laughs) which seems very voodoo, but is lovely. And like some contemplative reading. And then for me, like the biggest thing for good energy and for wellness is like community and friendships and maintaining all of that. So like I do ballet with a group of people that I absolutely love. I have some groups of friends that I meet up with and do things like play mahjong or just chat things out and then getting outside, being active, making art, things like that. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right, Emily, what's next for you and what's next for Vikra distilling? Did I say it right? Did I do it right? Yes. Beautiful. Well done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, well, we're almost 10 years old. Like, our, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary of releasing our first products this next year in February. So we're working on a big 10-year celebration that will probably push a little bit more into the spring so that the weather's a little warmer. But working on some 10-year celebration stuff, we just launched a rebrand. So we've kind of been getting that onto the market and getting that all settled. Always working on fun new things happening in the cocktail room and new cocktails. And we'll be having some special release products every year. I'm not going to say what they are, but working on a kind of special release schedule. And then, yeah, some of the nitty gritty stuff we're like working on launching with some new distributors in some states. So just lots of paperwork and onboarding and exciting stuff happening in the background. But that's, you know, hopefully going to make our products more available in some more Midwestern states. And yeah, always trying to grow, always trying to do good things for our community, always trying to you know, improve our production processes to be more and more energy efficient, material efficient, things like that. So lots of like sustainability stuff always happening in the background as well. All right. So my last question I have for you is what is your cocktail then? I'm super curious. What does Emily drink? Ooh, this is an interesting question. So the cocktail that made me first like cocktails was a Negroni Mm. because I love bitter things. I love complex things and Mm -hmm. I love gin. So Love Campari. So that was what really turned me on to cocktails, and it will always be a favorite. But in spite of myself become a martini person over the last couple of years, I just love a nice, like, clean, crisp, not dirty martini, although I will take an olive in my clean martini. And I usually have, like, a half-size one, actually. I <laughs> just enjoy, like, a half-size martini. And it's, yeah. it's so lovely and crisp and complex and clean and fresh. I love that. I know. I know. I'm like, maybe I need to become more of a, more, like, give martinis a second world here, around here. Yeah. So, I used to yeah. not like them at all. I don't know what changed. I thought I was never going to be a martini person. 
I did this whole thing. Do you know Eric Eastman? He did Easy and Otsky Bitters, and now he works with Minnesota Clear Ice, and he's a total yeah. cocktail person. We spent like a day with him making different martinis, trying to get me to like martinis. And at the end of the day, I was like, I will never like martinis. And then just naturally over the last couple of years, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just got more mature, but uh, it's like, you know what sounds good? A martini. And I kind of turned into a mini martini person. You just needed to come up with the idea. Like, it's always Maybe like, just somebody to- might plan to see. <laughs> Somebody's going to tell you something, you're going to be like, that's like, I think, a very entrepreneurial thing. They're going to be like, you need to do this. And you're like, no, 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 no. And then slowly over time, all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I actually think I should do this. And they're like, yep, that's right. <laughs> Didn't tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I also love a martini. Oh, isn't that just true of life, though? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) I love a martini. I just don't like the glass because I feel like it spills on me. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. No, never martini glasses. They are not useful. Put your martini in a coupe. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Because I always go to a restaurant when I order one. I'm like, just put it. I don't want it in the glass because it spills. Yeah. No, those glasses are ridiculous. Yeah, I'm always changing up the glassware. Yeah. No, you want something that looks nice, but that doesn't Sippy spill cup, everywhere. please. I just want a sippy cup. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> seriously. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being on the World's OKS Entrepreneur Podcast. You were such a fun delight, and I cannot wait. I, I'm going to admit, I have not been. Pretty much since I have kids, I haven't been up to Duluth. So I'm going to make a special trip. Also, because you have a really great sauna up there, and I need... It's not your sauna, yes. but... There's a really great sauna, well, and I love a good cold dip. That's my husband. <laughs> Bill's the sauna. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, well, wow. now I'm double, doubling down on that. So, okay. Yeah, have a cocktail. We'll bring a trailer. Sauna therapy. I love that. Both Andrew and I are team cold dip. So, yeah. We'll jump oh, into the lake. So, awesome. awesome. Well, it was so fun to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure that you share it with a friend. That is one of the most important ways for our podcast to grow. And then also rate it five stars. That's also an equally great way for the podcast to grow. I literally, until I started a podcast, didn't know that you should be rating podcasts. So I'm letting you know now as a person that just started a podcast is go rate our podcast. It really helps us get traction on the back end on both Apple and Spotify. Yeah. And then, yeah, go like us on Instagram and TikTok. And also send us an email or a DM. It's really great to get the feedback from you all. Yeah. Have an okay week. Have an okay week. Bye. Bye.